Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews this morning. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series, a verse-by-verse series of this incredible New Testament book written by someone who we don't know. He is anonymous, but what we know about him is that he loved Jesus, he loved the Jewish people, and he longed for his fellow followers of Jesus Christ to persevere and endure amidst all manner of persecution and struggle. And what he's been doing is he's been reminding the people that to give up on Jesus would be the most foolish thing that any Christ follower could ever think or imagine of doing. And so he has in these first four chapters, like just a broken record reminded us that Jesus is the greatest of all time. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the patriarchs. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the lawgiver Moses. And what we're we're going to learn today is that he is greater than any of the high priests that came before him. Now, for much of the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about in these days, Hebrews is a book that is a bit far away from us, from our context of where we're living and how we live. We're Gentiles. This book was written to Hebrew Christians with this knowledge and this experience of living under Old Testament Judaism. That's not something we live around in our day. We also are reading a book that was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe, and yet what we're going to see is how truly awesome our Savior is and how his awesomeness, if you will, should radically change who we are and should impact every fiber and fabric of our being and our lives. And so today we come to a topic, to a subject matter that we don't know much about, and that is the high priest, the high priest of Israel. And what we're going to learn is we need to know that Jesus is our high priest because he is doing things as our high priest that you and I will depend on in our greatest hour of need. And so we turn our attentions to Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let's read this and ask the Lord to move in us this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to imagine for a moment, it's election day. The day had come. Everyone held their breath as to the speculation of the outcome. It seemed like there were backers for the leading candidates. Only the best should consider such a role because you were going to be selected on your looks, on your aptitude, on your character, uh, on your ability to speak with eloquence. And if you were to be selected, you would be selected and bestowed upon you great power and prestige. A security detail would be given to you and you'd be revered by the masses. You would become the talk of the nation. Now you're thinking, I'm talking about what happened this week. I'm not. I'm talking about what would happen in Jerusalem when there was the election of the high priest. 
as a high priest, you would be selected by your own electoral college. That electoral college, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the chief leaders and rabbis and teachers in the nation of Israel. Now, they would go and debate. They would dialogue about who should be selected. The reason why they needed to pick just the right man was his role was even more important than that of the king of Israel. You see, the king of Israel, he interacted between himself and the people. The high priest interacted with the people in their relationship with God. He was the go-between. He was the bridge builder that brought the people to their God and brought God to their people. Now, Jewish historians tell us that this election was grander and greater than even uh, the annunciation of a new king in Israel. And they would go about comparing and contrasting the leading candidates in that until the best man was selected. And then with great pomp and circumstance, when the selection was made, there would be great uh, articulation of joy about who was selected. He was the one who'd be inaugurated, the mediator between God and man. And as a result, trumpets would be blown and shouts of exclamation would be heard. It was a celebration. And the one who would articulate it was one who was called the patron of the court. He would come and he would announce that the winner is, and he would state the name. The author of Hebrews today plays the part of the patron of the court of the Sanhedrin. His job is to proclaim that when it comes to the selection of the greatest of all high priests, the winner is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice in our text right away, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is he? Who's the winner of this? Jesus, the Son of God of God. This morning, we are going to look and we are going to understand who this Jesus is. This Jesus who plays the part of the high priest, the great high priest over all of us and the role that he plays for us as his followers. And what we're going to see is that he is the great high priest for four very distinct reasons. Let's look at the first one this morning. Number one, Jesus is the great high priest because he reigns supreme over everything. Notice the title. He is the son of God. Now, right away, we need to recognize that often the high priest that was selected usually was because of someone's father. We see that with Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. We see that with Eli and his two sons. We see that over and over again. But Jesus is greater than all of these high priests because he is the son of our almighty God in heaven. Now, there are a couple things that we need to know about this. First of all, notice how the writer speaks of Jesus as a high priest. He isn't just one of many high priests. He is, as it says, the great high priest. If you underline in your Bible, underline that phrase great there, because that is the only time in all of scripture that great modifies the title of high priest. Now, high priests were prominent. They didn't need the word great added. They were prominent in scripture. 
In fact, in the Bible, we see people like Aaron, who served as a high priest, Eli, Samuel, even Melchizedek, who we'll learn about in the days to come. But these were high priests, but Jesus is greater than all of them. Well, why? First of all, we need to recognize how Jesus approaches God. Notice in our text, it tells us, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, most high priests on the Day of Atonement would go into the temple. They would enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest was only to go, where the presence of God was to be found. And the high priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of his people. Now, if he didn't do that right, according to number 16, he could die. We see that with the lives of Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, who the Bible says they offered some unauthorized fire during their time of, uh, in the Holy of Holies. And what takes place? They are killed in that instant. And it tells us that Aaron doesn't even fight it. He doesn't even rebut it because he knows you don't mess around with God. And they obviously had. But notice how Jesus approaches God. First of all, he doesn't meet him in some place here on earth. Jesus ascended into heaven. Speaking, he went through the heavens or through the clouds. Speaking of his ascension after his earthly ministry was completed here on earth. And he now approaches God the Father in heaven. In a place of total perfection outside of the presence of sin. Now we get this picture of what is going on. Now, not only does he approach differently God than all their high priests, but I want you to recognize in many of the commentaries that I was reading through this week, there was a sense of anxiety within each of the high priests. You knew that if you didn't do everything just right, you ran the risk of losing your life. You better do it just right. You better have the right heart. You better do everything as has been meticulously laid forth in the law. But what we see of Jesus, as he approaches the Father in heaven, he does so with no anxiety. He does so with no worries. And the question is, why? The reason why is he had finished his work as a high priest, and he now was able to do something that no other high priest could do. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, one page over, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We are told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sin. There's the job. There's the ministry of the high priest to make purification for sin. Now, we know that the high priest would have done that by sacrificing a blameless or spotless animal before the Lord and to take its blood and throw it on the mercy seat. But what Jesus did is he is the sacrificial lamb. He laid down his life. He made purification for sin. And notice what he did. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Go to verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1. And to which of the angels does God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? When Jesus approaches, the reason why he is greater than all other high priests, when you were in the Holy of Holies as a high priest, you were busy doing work. You did what you were called to do, and you got out of there. It was no place or time to dawdle and to goof around. This was serious business. But notice Jesus. 
Jesus is great because he comes into the Holy of Holies and he sits down. He sits down because his work is finished. He sits down because he has no anxiety, no fear of standing in the presence of Almighty God because he is the sinless lamb that was slain. He is the great high priest. But notice, there's another element here. And that is, as we talk about this great high priest, the Hebrew readers would have listened and said, okay, Jesus is this great God, and he is this great high priest. He's the one who upholds the creation, and he's the one who created all that is seen and unseen. And so what I begin to think is, man, he's so great, and if he's so great, I'm never going to get near him. And that was true of the high priest in their days. You couldn't get close to a high priest. He was set apart. In fact, according to uh, rabbinical writings and the law, a high priest was not to be a part of parties or social gatherings. The high priest in Jesus's day were the first to social distance in their time around people. He would not be a part of menial tasks. That is, he wouldn't work. Uh, He didn't go around cooking food. He didn't clean. It even sounds weird, but the law said he was not uh, to change his clothes in the presence of any other individuals except that of his wife. He was to be not in the presence of other people. He was to be utterly set apart for the work that he was called to do. Now the writer says, now listen, he's greater than any of the high priests that we have ever had in Israel's past, but what makes him great isn't that he just simply transcends, that is he is set apart from us in every way, but notice what the text says, and it's like he's completing an argument that they have. So this high priest Jesus, the Son of God, he goes on and he gives us an action which we'll talk about in a moment to hold fast to our confession. But he goes, for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He's like, listen, I know what you're thinking. If Jesus is so grand and so great, then I can't be in his area code. But this is where Jesus is better than any of the high priest of his day or before him. He was one who was able to interact with people. He was one who was able to sympathize, that is, to suffer along with or to join in another's trouble. Well, how did he do that? He put on flesh. He made his dwelling, John 1, 14 says, he made his dwelling among us. He became one of us. Now, this would change, radically change the prominent thought of the Greeks and the Hebrews of the days that this writer is writing in. For the Greeks, they saw God as detached. They saw God as apathetic to the events and circumstances of the human experience. For the Jews, they saw God as loving, as faithful, but so transcendent that who could ever be in his presence and live to speak of it? But what we see in Jesus is something that should blow us away. In fact, notice in uh, chapter one, we see again and again this one that created and upholds the universe, the radiance of the glory, the exact imprint of the nature of God in this Jesus who holds everything together by the power of his word. And we say transcendence, transcendence, transcendence. He's so much better, so much greater, so much more than we could ever ask for or imagine. But look at Hebrews 2.17. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, 17, we are reminded, and with whom, uh, let's see here, I'm in 3.17, 2.17, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And so for him to serve as a high priest, he had to become like one of us. Why? Because the high priest was representative of man to God. So in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to take on this role of high priest to represent you and I in our sin before a holy and righteous God. Now, by putting on flesh, he does something that is in many ways foreign to God. He's able to sympathize with us. God cannot, listen to me very carefully, God could not sympathize with us. Yes, he's all-knowing, but he doesn't know what it's like to be human until Christ put on flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was able firsthand to experience what it's like for us to live within the flesh. Now, there's a couple things that we see within this. Number one, what he does is he experiences what we experience. Write that somewhere. This sympathy involves our experiences. What is meant there is what Eugene Peterson said, to be human is to be in trouble. And the reason why that is said is as human beings, we're frail. Uh, we struggle with things. We're, we have uh, all kinds of constraints to us. We're always hungry. We're always needing rest. We always have needs. And when Jesus put on flesh, he laid aside his prerogatives, he laid aside his preferences, and he put himself within the constraints of humanity. He hungered. He thirsted. He needed rest. He needed the things that we needed, and he did that so that he might share in our experience, we're going to learn this later on. In fact, next week when we talk about the need of the high priest to be one of the people. And so maybe today you're experiencing things. And you're like, who can understand what I'm experiencing? Who knows what it's like to go through what it is? Maybe you've lost love. Maybe you've been mocked or scorned. Maybe you've experienced great amounts of physical or social or emotional pain. And you're wondering, who is there to sympathize? I want you to know Jesus Christ, your great high priest, is there standing alongside of you and saying, I've been there. I've experienced it. But it goes deeper than that. Because many times, I, and we do this as parents, by the way, our kids tell us something. They tell us about an experience, especially a painful experience they have, and our response is, suck it up. I've been there, I've dealt with it, and, and that happens. That's what it's like to be a kid. But Jesus goes farther than that. Jesus could say, listen, I had a lot go for me, and, and, and we would do that. My father, who grew up in Baghdad, would remind me of the sand dunes that he would have to cross over to get to school. Ten miles of sand dunes. He didn't say snow, he called sand. And none of that was true, but what he wanted to say is, listen, if you thought you had it bad, I had it worse, right? You know you're getting old when you start throwing that stuff out to individuals. Jesus doesn't do that with us. In fact, Jesus says, listen, I've experienced what you've experienced, but he goes deeper than that. And that's also that he sympathizes with our emotions. He knows what it's like 
to experience pain. We see Jesus at wedding celebrations, enjoying life, being a part of the party, enjoying the experience of happiness and a time of joy. But we also know that he experienced great pain and sorrow. Looking at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. And so maybe you've got emotions right now. You're experiencing, because of your experience, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I've been there. I've had to deal with that. But he recognizes and he enters into the emotions of his followers. So when you cry, he cries. When you are filled with laughter, he is filled with laughter because we have a high priest who is in heaven, who knows what it's like to be human. Now, Right away, we think, and I had some questions in the first service about this, and so I want to spend a little time here. Right away, we think, well, yeah, Jesus can reminisce about those things. That is, he can look back at his experience as a human. But church, remember, when Christ ascended to heaven, he ascended as a fully human individual. He didn't leave his flesh here. He didn't leave his humanity here. Today, seated in the holies of holies in the throne room of heaven is a fully deified and a fully human Savior and Lord. So he is sitting there and those saints who have gone before us who are absent from their body but present with the Lord are looking right now and they're saying, I want my body to be like Christ's glorious body. And I look forward to that day. They're looking forward to the resurrection of their bodies so they will be like Christ. We look forward on this side of heaven to the day in a twinkling of an eye when we will be changed and our body will become like his heaven, heavenly and resurrected body. That body that was seen by the disciples, that body that Thomas touched, that body that is going to be now and forever human. And so we have one who will sit in the presence of our God, who knows and says, I not only know what it's like to be human, Father, but I am still human. How awesome a thought that is. We have a Savior who sympathizes with our struggles. So that's why Peter tells the people as he's writing to them, cast your anxieties on him. Throw your cares and concerns to him because he cares for you. He cares for you as one who has gone to the mat just like you have, who has struggled just like you have. Now, those struggles aren't simply trials. He goes on and he tells us in the text, notice verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So one of the jobs of the high priest was to represent the people, and his job was to know the people that he was serving. This picture is seen in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. He understands not only his issues, but the issues his people have. Now, this is where Jesus is even greater because Jesus doesn't have any sins to confess. Jesus doesn't have any sins that keep him from a right relationship with the God that he is going to speak on behalf of us to. So Jesus, we are told, is without sin. He lived his life 
without sin. Now notice the phrase, tempted in every respect. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus was tempted with every sin. Just go down the alphabet, all of the sins, Jesus was able to cross them off one at a time. Yep, I, I was tempted in that way, tempted in that way, tempted in that way. That's not what's being said, and that would not be true uh, of Jesus. What we are being told is Jesus was tempted in such a way that he can sympathize with all of us who have been tempted with sin. Now, recognize you are not tempted with every sin. There are sins that uh, I'm tempted with that you're not tempted with. There are sins that old people are tempted with that young people aren't tempted with. There are sins that men are tempted with that women aren't and, and vice versa. We have all these different sins. What Jesus is, is Jesus went through all of these different sins that he had to experience and he did them without falling to sin. And so Jesus knows what it's like to have temptation around the corner. Jesus knows what it's like to have temptation all about him. Jesus knows what it's like to have to say no to things and say yes to his Father in heaven. So you and I who struggle with temptation, who find ourselves being hounded by temptation, we can look to the great high priest who was tempted and never sinned, which gives us the roadmap to victory, to say, not my will, God, but your will be done. That is the pathway to fighting temptation. Now, here's the important element. Notice in chapter 5, verse 3, passage we'll look at next week, so I don't want to dig in too deeply here, but something happens that makes Jesus greater than all other high priests, and that is because he is sinless, he doesn't have to do one part of the high priest's job. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated, that's the high priest, to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now turn in your Bibles for a moment to Hebrews chapter seven. Hebrews chapter seven, so turn one page over and we start in verse 26. Hebrews seven, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, in comparison to the other high priests, Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then uh, for those of the people, since Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself up, and what he's alluding to is offering himself up on the cross of Calvary. Now, what does that mean for us? Back in the day, these Hebrew people that are listening to this message for the first time, they know their high priest. Before he could advocate for them, he had to advocate for himself, okay? That means before he could work for you, he had to work for himself. That is, he had to offer up sacrifices for himself before he could offer up sacrifices for others. Jesus is the great high priest because he is only focused in on you and me. He's only worried about interceding and advocating for you and I. I can't do that. You can't do that. No high priest can do that. But Jesus can because he is the sinless, spotless lamb that was slain. Amen? 
And so he's able to approach the throne and he's able to speak with confidence and he's able to bring us up as the uh, accuser of the brethren brings all accusations towards us. Jesus doesn't have to worry about his relationship with the Father. He's in communion with the Father, which gives him the ability at any time and at any place to advocate, to intercede on our behalf, whether we know it or not. He's working for you. He is the heavenly lobbyist for you and I as sinners, speaking into the ear of Almighty God so that we might find help in our time of need. Now that brings us to the final thing. And that is, okay, he is the one who reigns supreme. He sympathizes with our struggles. He lived a life without sin. The reason why Jesus is the winner as the greatest of high priests is he finally graces us with all the support we need. And so here we have this one who goes and he addresses our greatest issues. Now, right away, we think our greatest issue is what's going on in the here and now. Where we need Jesus now is in this time and in this place. Now, we need Jesus each and every hour, as the hymn writer says, we need him. But I want to remind you of something. Our need for Jesus now, in some ways, pales in comparison to our need of Jesus at a particular time. Notice what the writer says. The writer says, we need this Jesus, all right, so that we may draw with confidence near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what is that time? Well, you could say time, that time is all the time, which we do. We need Jesus all the time. But there's a specific time that's being talked about, and this is where our translator uh, breaks in our Bibles while helpful when we're reading through can be detrimental to us. Because right above the chapter break that tells us that Jesus is the great high priest, that's what it says in my Bible, is a verse that we looked at last week. And it talks about a specific moment in time. Notice verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there's a time, there's a place where you're going to stand before God and give an account of who we are. We can't lie our way through it. We can't try to explain our way through it. Why? Because we will be naked and exposed. And it is there in the presence of God. The day of judgment, listen to this very carefully. On the day of judgment, every man, woman, and child will stand before God in the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And as we approach, we walk in with our sin and we are unable to stand in the presence of Almighty God because we are filled with sin. We are filthy with sin. And what we need is a high priest. We need a high priest to go before us. And in that hour of need, I want you to notice something about verse 13 through to verse 16. In verse 13, we are exposed. We are naked. We are filled with anxiety, fear, and trepidation because we've got to give an account. But later in this passage, something changes. Because we now can enter that throne of grace with what? Anxiety? Trepidation? Trembling? No, with confidence. How do we approach as sinners 
the throne, the holy throne of God with confidence? The answer is Jesus. Yeah, amen. So how does he do it, right? He gives us two things, two gifts that move us from having to be fearful of giving an account, being exposed of our sin, to approaching the throne of grace with confidence. Notice what the two gifts are. Mercy and grace. Now, right away, we say, okay, mercy and grace, that means nice things. But it's more than that. Mercy is the act of withholding punishment. So as we approach this throne, we approach as sinners. And what is a sinner punished for? His sin. And what is the punishment for sin? Death. Namely, hell separated for all eternity from God. What Jesus does as our high priest is he gives us mercy. The best way to explain this is as we approach the thing that keeps us upright in the throne room of God, the first is a crutch called mercy. And what it does is it says, I'm not going to give you the punishment that you deserve. Jesus as our high priest is the merciful high priest that the writer of Hebrews said earlier, the one who because of what he has done, because he's advocated for us to the Father, we no longer have to fear hell. But then there's a second crutch that enables us to stand upright in the presence of Almighty God, and that's grace. God gives us through his son, Jesus Christ, what we do not deserve, namely, listen, a relationship with God the Father, and a place in heaven for all eternity. And so because of Jesus and what he gives, you and I no longer with fear and trepidation enter into the throne room of God. Now we enter in with this grateful confidence that the one who saved me, the one who advocates for me, the one who intercedes on my behalf is the one who allows me to look my father in heaven and even hear the words one day, well done, good and faithful servants. It's because of Jesus and the ministry he has, and that is why the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest, he is the victor, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God. And so what do we do with all of this? Now remember, we haven't had a high priest, we're Gentiles, uh, we're far from this in many ways. Well, the writer gives us two commands, and I'll land this very quickly. But there are two things that we need to do. If we have accepted Jesus as our high priest, the one who represents us before God, the one who is the bridge builder between us and God, then there's something we need to do. Now, Jesus is doing his work. We can't do his work. But two things the author says is, number one, he tells us, since we have this great high priest, this Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Number one, cling to our confession. Now, what no doubt is being said here is the confession that these men and women had when they were baptized. I believe. I trust. I give my allegiance to. And then they would enter into the waters as was seen here this morning. This is what is trying to be articulated. The high priest would acknowledge to God his people. 
I'm not here just for myself. I'm here for these people. And he would acknowledge us to the Father. What Jesus asked of us is we would acknowledge him to others. Remember what Jesus said? Um, I will not acknowledge you to the Father if you don't acknowledge me to the world. And so what is our job? You and I cannot receive all the benefits and blessing of our relationship to the great high priest if we are unwilling to acknowledge that high priest to the world. And what we need to do is we need to speak in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our families and to our children and to our parents and to strangers and friends alike that we have a savior. We have a great high priest who entered into heaven and who is now our savior and Lord who can take our sins and wash us clean of every iniquity so that we might stand and that they might stand when they put their faith and trust in that savior that they can stand before the throne of God with confidence. Are you clinging to that and are you articulating that to anyone who will listen? Number two, you need to draw close to him with confidence. Some of us right now, because of our sins, maybe it was another bad week where you looked at things you weren't supposed to, you said things that should have never come out of your mouth, you thought things, you treated people in a wrong way, you made light of God when you should have made much of him, and you're feeling pretty bogged down right now, and you're like, God won't receive me, God won't accept me, I've messed up one too many times. Well, I want you to know, because Jesus is your high priest, you can draw near to him today. And you can draw near to him and experience his forgiveness and his love and his redemption and his saving grace each and every day so that we might have the ability to walk and talk with our God, our Father in heaven. And so these two things, by the way, in the Greek, they are present things. That means they need to happen today, but they also have this idea that they are a continuous action. And so as Jesus, who is continually interceding and advocating for us each and every day, day and night, he's doing this, what he is asking of us, what he is requiring of us is that daily we would cling to that confession and daily we would draw closer to him. Will you do that? Will you, in light of all that Jesus did, will you come near to him and experience the fullness of all that he's done so that you might experience the totality of what God has for you? He's inviting you to do that. Let us draw near to God. And when we do, my friends, we will see with such amazement all that Christ has done for us. And we will know with a great promise from heaven that when we stand that day before the presence of Almighty God, that we will be able to stand with confidence in our time of need. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, I'm so thankful for this passage. What an incredible passage. We could spend weeks on this in light of all that you've done. And next week, we're going to learn more about your job of, uh, of being this great high priest and what it means and how it affects us. But Lord, we just thank you for being the one who is able to sympathize. 
You're the one who lived life without sin, and you're the one who gives us all the support we need. And so we say in our hearts and we say with our mouths that you are the greatest. And because you're the greatest, Lord, we're going to live our lives differently. We're going to use our time in a more wise way. We're not going to fall prey to the advances and and, uh, loves of the world, but we're going to follow you. Thank you for your work, your mediating work. Thank you that you are the one mediator between God and man. You are our high priest. We confess that to you. We proclaim that in the company of the angels and your, your people here in this place. We love you, and we give you praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.